Hello, and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Well, fans of three-word political slogans have a new one for their collection. But will Stop the Boats, and yes, we're going to be hearing a lot more of that one, cut through in the way the government hopes? What exactly is its policy, and will it work in the way ministers want? We'll take a look at Rishi Sunak's controversial new asylum plan. Then, and dare I say it yet again, we will turn to the headaches that a former Prime Minister is causing for the current occupant of number 10. Yes, Boris Johnson is back in the news, was he ever away? And this time with a plan to knight his father, Stanley. So is it time to abolish the system of Prime Ministerial Resignation Honours? And talking about abolishing things, that's something this government has been rather keen to do when it comes to public sector bodies, including things like Public Health England, uh, and in the past, we've seen the demise of the Audit Commission or the UK Border Agency. All of those have gone, and more might be going to follow. But why do abolitions so often go wrong, and what can be done to make them a success? Well, we've got a new IFG paper out on just that, and we'll be talking to its author. Joining me throughout the programme will be IFG Programme Director and one-time senior civil servant Alex Thomas. Hi, Alex. Hi, Anna. And I'm delighted that Gary Gibbon, political editor of Channel 4 News, is also with us. Hi, Gary. Hi. How are you? Hi. Very good, thanks. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. It feels as though the news agenda is back up to full speed. It does a bit. I think Rishi Sunak promised us a quieter life, didn't he? <laughs> or in government, that's what we were hoping for. <laughs> Okay, let's start with the big policy announcement on asylum, which included a new Downing Street podium with the words Stop the Boats stamped on the front. Rhys Klein, our senior researcher who's been studying the legislation in detail, lucky him, joins us now. Hi, Rhys. Hi, Hannah. But Gary, let's start with you. From a media perspective, how did this new policy land? Loudly and often. There were about four days of stop the boats dominating the news. And then if you didn't feel that it was the policy itself dominating, there was a sort of aftershock and a bow wave of publicity because uh, Gary Lineker had commented uh, on on the policy. So I think from the government's point of view, um, getting it embedded in the public's mind, this simple slogan, this keen intent Uh, is half the project. The legislation uh, is the other half of the project and actually having an effect on the ground. Well, the first half has uh, definitely worked. If you ask the public what the pledges, missions, targets were announced by the two main party leaders at the beginning of this year and which leader they associate which slogan with, uh, I suspect there'd be a standout winner in terms of connection and Uh, penetration cut through and it would be stop the boats linked to Rishi Sunak. So in that sense, uh, they've scored a win. And Rhys, can you tell us a little bit more in detail about what the bill does? Yeah, sure. I mean, at its heart, it's trying to do what the Rwanda scheme before it tried to do, which is deter people from crossing the channel in small boats. Um, But this new legislation tries to do it in a few different ways. Firstly, by banning anybody who arrives in the UK in those ways from claiming asylum here um, in all but only a very small number of circumstances. Um, It also gives the power to the government to detain those people for as long as the Home Secretary considers there to be a 
a quote reasonable prospect of removal. Um, this builds on the government's past approach, which has tended to readmit people into the asylum system if they can't remove them in six months. Uh, it then goes further still by placing a duty on the Home Secretary to remove those people if they can, uh, either to to their home country if the government deem that country to be safe, or to another safe country in the government's eyes, uh, such as uh, Rwanda. Uh, as part of the wider scheme we have with that country. Finally, it also uh, introduces the prospect of a new or, in the Home Secretary's words, more comprehensive safe route for people to claim asylum here with a cap on the number of refugees to be admitted each year voted on in Parliament. But rather perversely, it uh, the briefing around the legislation seems to suggest that that won't be enacted until the small boats crisis has been resolved, which uh, rather misses the potential of, of that scheme. And uh, just to, to add one thing the bill does not do, which is it doesn't bring with it uh, new capacity for removals to uh, other countries or returns agreements. So it's setting out some circumstances in which the government might be able to remove quite a lot of people if it actually had somewhere to send those people to. And on that front, we've got the, the summit with the, the French tomorrow, I think, isn't it, where that might be something that the government is seeking to start to talk about with the EU. Yes, although it's interesting that the briefing ahead of tomorrow's summit has focused entirely on arrangements for preventing people from crossing the channel, patrols uh, and uh, the police operations and so on. It has not focused on uh, returns agreements. So so we'll wait to see whether that actually forms part of the uh, negotiations tomorrow. Interesting. And on the front of the legislation, literally on the front page, something which personally is a former clerk of printing in the public bill office who was responsible always for checking that this wording was on the front of a, of a bill before it was published. We saw something very unusual, didn't we? Yes, we saw the Home Secretary making a statement under something called Section 191B of the Human Rights Act, which uh, essentially means that the government is saying it's unable to confirm that the legislation in its entirety accords with the European Convention on Human Rights. And Suella Braverman actually went further in a letter to backbench MPs in saying that her interpretation was that this statement meant there was a more than 50% chance that some of the bill uh, does not accord with the European Convention on Human Rights. So essentially what that means in practice is it's teeing up the European Court on Human Rights to have to adjudicate on whether or not the legislation does accord and therefore it's teeing up a fight with the ECHR. Alex, does that make, does that sort of declaration from the government saying that they're, they're not at all sure this is, this is legal in terms of the commitments that the UK has entered into, does that make this rather difficult for civil servants? Um, it doesn't actually because of the process that they're following. So I uh, probably made myself unpopular on Twitter last night by pointing out that actually um, Nick Clegg signed one of these uh, uh, declarations of incompatibility or potential incompatibility when he signed when he put the uh, House of Lords reform legislation uh, mm -hmm. into Parliament, um, uh, which subsequently didn't go anywhere. But you're absolutely right, Hannah. It is unusual. Um, but it is not improper. And that's why the Section 191B process is there, is, is to say that the government wants to per 
pursue something that it thinks you know has a has a good chance of being uh, declared unlawful, but nevertheless it wants to pursue it. The reason why uh, Nick Clegg did was because of the prisoner voting issue that was around at the time. And so if you were going to put a uh, piece of legislation that said you were going to elect the House of Lords, but not allow prisoners to vote in that election, that was, uh, in the view of the, the official advice, um, uh, uh, likely to be um, uh, to fall foul of the um, uh, European Convention on, on Human Rights. So uh, it's not a... This suggestion that kind of flies around that m- means that this is some sort of slam dunk, uh, this is unlawful legislation. You know, there are all sorts of things to debate about the legislation, its effectiveness, its morality, um, uh, and the political benefits or otherwise uh, of it. But um, but I think this is a more nuanced point on the law than, um, uh, that, 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 than some are presenting it as. What would have caused a problem for civil servants was if Soyla Brevin said, no, I'm not going to sign this 91B statement. I want to say that it is compatible um, with, uh, with the European uh, Convention on Human rights, uh, that would have caused problems. Um, also, if there was no reasonable argument at all to say that it could um, could be in compliance with international law, then that might cause problems as well. But where we've uh, landed up, there is a you know, there, there's a there's a question about um, how Home Office civil servants are reacting more generally to this. But on this narrow point, I think the government's in the clear in you know for that's the a, moment. That's a really useful clarification, Alex. Thank you. And let's just move on to that uh, wider uh, feelings of unhappiness in the Home Office because. Uh, we saw a rather amazing email with the Home Secretary's name on it uh, this week, didn't we, claiming that it was the fault of the civil service, amongst others, that uh, progress hadn't been made on uh, this issue in the past. Yeah, the sort of left-wing blog uh, tying uh, um, blob, sorry, not blog, um, uh, <laughs> blogs on the mind, um, uh, tying civil servants together with you know lefty lawyers uh, and uh, the blob and um, uh, all the kind of opponents uh, to this. I mean, it was a. It seems that it was a sort of mistake or misstep. Uh, number ten and the Home Secretary have rode back on this quite a uh, quite a lot over the last twenty-four hours or so. But it's pretty remarkable for um, the Home Secretary to put a her name to whether she knew it or not um, a communication going out on the part of the Conservative Party uh, attacking her own civil servants uh, so uh, you know that caused a, a, a storm um, shouty crackers was uh, reported as um, uh, uh, the uh, permanent secretary at the Home Office Matthew Rycroft I, I, I doubt that to some extent, I think that might be a little bit of um, a little bit of vivid uh, language, but clearly there was unhappiness at the top of the civil service about um, uh, about the fact that that communication had, had gone out, um, and it does seem that Number Ten pretty rapidly recognised that this was was counterproductive. Which is not to say at all that there isn't. Uh, concern in the Home Office. The other thing that uh, happened in relation to this was some leaked messages from a staff forum Q&A where um, civil servants were expressing concern about about this sort of thing, uh, questioning the ethics of it, questioning whether it was in compliance with their their duties. Not, I, I say, on that um, narrow ECHR point, but more uh, generally. Uh, my personal view on this, the other you know unpopular position is that uh, this is management. This is not. This doesn't suggest there's some sort of uh, cabal of uh, opposition in the Home Office. This is the leadership of the Home Office hosting a Q&A where staff in private, theoretically, can express their concerns so that the managers can, can answer them. So uh, again, I think this is all kind of slightly, uh, um, you know, uh, th- th- those who are looking for a, a blob uh, uh, can, can find one in, in some of these messages. But I don't think it, it really it exists in, in any significant form. Gary, how do you see um, Labour playing this issue? With difficulty. Uh, They've been put in an uncomfortable position on purpose uh, by the Conservative Party here. Uh, The 
leadership of the Conservative Party feels this is a, a great wedge issue. They can play culture wars with it. Rishi Sunak, not instinctively like Boris Johnson, someone who's comfortable in that sort of area, you might think, but boy, did he look comfortable delivering the lines, the attack lines against Keir Starmer in Prime Minister's questions. And it was very telling that uh, the Labour front bench, whether it's uh, Yvette Cooper, Shadow Home Secretary or Keir Starmer, don't hit back at uh, the morality of the policy, which might have been a traditional uh, Labour reflex, and for some in the Labour Party still very much is, but hit back at whether the government is being efficient or not. And you hear this, uh, you still hear the old morality argument from backbenchers. Uh, there's this sort of uh, alliance at the moment between the campaign group uh, and, and left-wingers in the Labour Party and, and, and the multimillionaire Gary Lineker. Uh, that's where you hear that argument uh, put. Uh, and you could see Suella Braverman licking her lips and delighting uh, when uh, someone talked about red wall xenophobia, uh, one backbencher, others made similar attacks. And every time she heard one of those, she sort of, she, she she pinged the tennis ball back at them uh, and was absolutely delighted. But Labour are trying not to give her uh, the chance to in some way portray them as uh, blocking uh, the stop the boats uh, uh, idea. They want to uh, be seen the front bench as saying we're against the way you're implementing it. And uh, that is an awkward line uh, awkward line to walk. And, and you felt a bit of their discomfort yesterday in, uh, in Prime Minister's questions. I suppose, Gary, it, does, it depends on if it works. Uh, and I guess one of the things that's been really striking is Sunak had crafted this quite subtle pledge as one of his five pledges to in, in, introduce legislation and has now doubled down, trebled down, quadrupled down on it. You know, if, if the votes aren't stopped by the time of the next election, where, where do you think that's going to end it, up? It is very interesting that. And I think, again, he's taking a bit of a leaf out of the copybook of the man he helped to topple, Boris Johnson, because uh, when Boris Johnson Johnson was uh, destroying lots of bits of constitutional furniture uh, in the to prove, in part, that he was determined to get Brexit done. Uh, that created enough sparks and friction for voters to spot. Well, here's a man who's definitely intent on getting Brexit done. In the end, uh, he did uh, get it done. But in those months uh, soon after he's taken office, uh, the prorogation uh, debate being at the centre of all of this, you can see. Uh, that there was a strategy there, which was just to convince people that you were, you shared their ambition. And I think there are people around Rishi Sunak. I think Rishi Sunak himself, those who've met him privately uh, uh, to talk about this bill, feel that he personally believes he's found a brilliant way of achieving the policy objective. But there are others around him who feel this probably won't actually necessarily uh, reduce the number of boats. Uh, it can't be sure to be doing that, or if it does, it may not um, you know, stop the boats, but nobody in the country will be in any doubt that that's what Rishi Sunak wants to do, and that brings its own political dividend, is the thought. And Rhys, just to come back to you and to sort of zoom out, as Gary's been saying, we it's clear from polling, and the, the government is, is very clear that stopping the boats is something which is a priority for the public. But what is the actual evidence on the size of the problem facing the UK? Do we have a bigger problem than other countries in terms of illegal migration? I mean, no is the is the is a short answer. I mean, it's a, it's a asylum is definitely a global issue driven by global economic and geopolitical factors. And then if you look at the uh, per head of population figures of asylum applications, the UK is is sort of somewhat below the European average. So, for example. 
in 2021, there were nine applications for every 10,000 people in the UK. And that compares to 14 applications for every 10,000 people in the EU 27. So on on scale, we're not uh, an exception. There is something particular about the, the the danger of the of the small boat crossings in the channel. But again, it's important there not to think of ourselves as alone. I mean, there were a hundred thousand uh, or over a hundred thousand sea arrivals in the Mediterranean, mostly in in southern Italy last year, for example, mirroring that spike that we've seen in the channel. So, so we're by no means an exception in this. Thanks very much, Reese. Been really helpful. Where can people find out more about the new bill? Uh, well, I urge people to to keep an eye on the IFG's website because we've got an explainer coming up uh, shortly. And then early next week, we'll be doing a whole episode of Inside Briefing, diving deep into the bill, what's in it, what isn't in it, how will it work, what will the challenges look like. So people should keep their eyes peeled for that. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Rhys. Well, let's move on to a subject that was also making headlines this week, and that's the honours system. Because on Tuesday, the Times revealed that Boris Johnson is planning to knight his father. Gary, were you surprised by this? Yes, I thought it would be a peerage uh, <laughs> or, or Pope or, or, or something, something bigger. Um, I, don't think, I don't think one can be totally uh, surprised. Uh, two other relatives... Uh, um, seem to have dropped off uh, the list. There was speculation that he might have uh, uh, some sort of honour in mind for his wife, Carrie, uh, one for his sister, Rachel. Uh, But yeah, uh, Boris Johnson has this extraordinary uh, devil-may-care approach, cavalier approach, does, says things that no one else in politics would think was remotely sustainable. He's gone for the biggest bumper list of resignation honours ever seen and put his father on it. I mean, it is it is breathtaking. Um, there is some suggestion. I thought some uh, some traditional Boris Johnson supporters might actually think, oh, good for him. He's, you know, looking after his dad and that sort of thing. There is some suggestion in the polls that even, even traditional uh, Boris lovers uh, uh, have drawn the line at this one and think handing out an honour to your your dad uh, is is a bit much, uh, and and of course it begs the question as well about how serious he is about a comeback. If you're doing reckless things like this, um, I think with Boris Johnson, the fact is that all options are kept in separate compartments in his mind and remain active. Uh, I don't see the possibility of a comeback in this uh, Parliament, uh, but he would still have it in his mind. But the, uh, I don't think we can read too much into the uh, sort of comic potential of this uh, honours list uh, and assume that uh, this is a man who's uh, you know, give, given up. Uh, he, he still will have it in his mind that, uh, that there's a, a very diminishing chance of a way back in this parliament, I think hardly any. Uh, and in a future parliament, well, as recently as a few weeks ago, he talked to someone privately about how uh, he might come back after a, uh, I'm going to paraphrase, uh, uh, I think, what he uh, said here after after some other uh, uh, successor uh, messing things up uh, uh, in opposition. Yes, I mean, I, I I I struggle to see how it works because either he's either Rishi Sunak wins the next election, in which case presumably he'll stay as prime minister, or it would be a question of of Johnson contemplating being leader of the opposition, and that presumably seems like a far less attractive prospect. It's it's not it's not a natural for uh, Boris Johnson, and as we've seen, uh, his earning power when he's uh, not occupied with a government job uh, is quite considerable. I think the latest 
data suggests that uh, his outside earnings uh, represent 80% of outside earnings uh, for all members of parliament. Uh, so he, he'd be saying goodbye to a handsome pay packet. And as you say, leader of the opposition is not the job he feels he was put on earth for. Um, World uh, King, King, I think, was the one he had yeah, in mind when he was uh, when he was growing up. Hum- Humble MP for Uxbridge. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alex, Gary uh, jested at the start that he was surprised that Stanley wasn't being uh, made a peer, but that does point to a, a bigger issue here, doesn't it? I mean, this is the big question about resignation honours is the House of Lords, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I think uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I have no inside knowledge of this, but I wouldn't be totally surprised if there'd been a little bit of watering down going on in the Cabinet Office over the course of the last few months. That may be one reason why both Boris Johnson's and Liz Truss's uh, uh, lists have taken a little while to uh, to emerge. So perhaps uh, it was a peerage and has been uh, been been diluted. Uh, also, I mean, I agree on the House of Lords. I'll come, to, I'll come to that. But there is Johnson is the architect of his own uh, misfortune in one sense on this, not just by nominating his father, but because of because of what everybody thinks about him and 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 his image, Theresa May knighted Philip May. I think um, uh, okay, she he was more kind of part of the project, but no one uh, no one suggested that was uh, uh, grossly uh, I- improper. Um, uh, but that was partly because no one would su- suspect Theresa May of doing something like that. So it's all part of the Johnson brand. So I suspect he, he he's fairly relaxed about it. Um, but yes, of course, the bigger issue of the House of Lords. I mean, if if a knighthood enables Stanley Johnson to get a better table in a restaurant, that you know might stick in some people's craw. But actually, um, who who cares? Um, uh, uh, members of the House of Lords, uh, permanent seats in the UK legislature, genuine influence over public debate, legislation, and um, policy uh, there for a long time, ever expanding, um, uh, uh, ever expanding legislative uh, body. So far more significant on that. I mean, personally, my uh, inclination, if I were Rishi Sunak, would have been to say. Say for you know, say a, a few months ago, uh, uh, certainly at peerage level or even kind of peerage and knighthood level, say uh, this is not really the time for resignation uh, honours. We've got other priorities. Uh, never say never, but actually for the moment, let's just um, uh, get on with with governing rather than worrying about all of this stuff. Uh, raises broader questions of reform of the House of Lords. Um, the Brown Commission came out um, uh, suggesting that the Labour Party should uh, adopt wholesale reform of the or abolition even of the House of Lords uh, as part of its manifesto for the next uh, election. Um, the you know, All of this stuff makes it harder for the Conservative Party to, to defend against that if Labour chooses to to go on it. We'll, we'll see, but um, but it may take, um, you know, may take a lot of political energy over the course of the next couple of years. Gary, I mean, what do you see Sunak doing on these two fronts then do you think this in the first case I mean I've been arguing that he ought to go the whole hog say we're not doing resignation honours anymore this is outdated uh, I won't do it either uh, do you see any prospect of that um, and secondly do you think there's any any prospect of, of Sunak uh, trying to preempt uh, Labour thinking about the House of Lords reform and, and having that as their agenda by doing some reforms himself well, just on that second point, I don't think Rishi Sunak thinks House of Lords reform is one of the voters' priorities. We heard his five priorities for government at the beginning of the year in that January speech, and they were focus group to death. The House of Lords, if he looked like he was getting bogged down in that, I suspect he would he would think that an absolute failure of his 
mission. He, there was some speculation in the press recently that he he was talking to people who were interested in uh, House of Lords reform, but I think that's that's classic Rishi Sunak. We're getting to know the man a bit better, and he's awfully polite. <laughs> he, uh, there's a sort of head boy, prospective parents' day sort of um, beaming smile and welcome for people who come in the door. Uh, but the idea that uh, uh, whoever was knocking on his door asking for House of Lords reform, uh, that they'd get that up his agenda uh, in this parliament uh, when he thinks people uh, are worried about the cost of living and stop the boats and things like that, uh, I, I, I think that's I, – I can't see him can't see him doing that. Whether he'd do a resignation honours list, you can you can end up sort of you can you can I think it's been done in the past. People have said, "Oh, I'm going to forswear the resignation on honours list," and then you get a dissolution honours list that uh, has an awful lot of elements in it that look exactly the same. Uh, maybe maybe he'd go for something like that to give himself a bit of distance from uh, uh, Boris Johnson. There's certainly people who are telling him he should distance himself from Boris Johnson, uh, and maybe that. Sh- as much as he distinguishes himself from Keir Starmer, he should maybe distinguish himself from the Boris Johnson sort of as as he and some of his supporters would portray it, sort of reckless uh, approach to government. But he doesn't seem to have an appetite for that. So I wonder whether he'll actually go down that route. I, I wonder about that. Because, I mean, we talked on the podcast, I think, a couple of weeks ago about the problems that Johnson was causing Sunak and um, uh, said that, you know, effectively Sunak had to beat Johnson while not a uh, not, not being seen to beat him. And actually, Project Beat Johnson has gone quite well over the last couple of weeks. The withdrawal, um, uh, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, uh, legislation, the Windsor framework, um, to some extent, all of this uh, uh, asylum and um, stop the vote stuff uh, has has put Sunak in a stronger position there. The Privilege, Privileges Committee investigation is looks like it's pretty laser focused on on Boris Johnson. So if I were, you know, that, that little corner of Rishi Sunak's mind where he thinks I'd quite like Boris Johnson not to uh, not to be in my hair anymore um, has had a had a good few weeks. I think. I think that's fair. I think uh, Rishi Sunak's political capital has been built up by uh, the Windsor framework and this stop the boats uh, week of uh, publicity and uh, announced measures. And but what what I suppose it does is it, it sort of quietly differentiates him from mm. Boris Johnson. Whereas some people would tell him actually, why not proclaim? You're utterly different. Yeah, and show you're different rather than telling you're different. He, seem, he seems to draw yeah, back from that, that a bit. Yeah. Well, we'll have to wait and see when those lists finally emerge. Now, remember the bonfire of the quangos? Well, those quangos, or public bodies, have really been burning since 2010. The government has abolished hundreds of them. And it can go very well, saving money and improving services for citizens. But sometimes it doesn't go so well. And this is what our new report explores and seeks to remedy. And its author, IFG researcher Grant Dalton, joins us now. Hi, Grant. Hi, Hannah. So we're going to start with uh, some quickfire questions. Are you ready? Absolutely. (laughs) Tell us, what is a public body? So public bodies are bits of government that aren't departments and usually have some independence from ministers. So we're talking like DVLA, NHS England, the Environment Agency, things like that. Plenty of acronyms. And why do governments like abolishing public bodies? So there are good and bad reasons why why governments abolish public bodies. I think um, more generally, there's been an attempt to reduce the number and kind of simplify the landscape. Since 2010, as you said, the number has been reduced from about 800 to about 300. Um, but in, in specific cases, 
Um, often public bodies are abolished to try and save some money. Job Center Plus might be an example of that, or integrate functions that work better together. That was the that was the rationale for the um, abolition of Public Health England, the idea that you could um, integrate the kind of testing and the public health um, aspects together in one organization better. But there are some some more questionable reasons as well. So bringing things under more direct ministerial control when they're going wrong, that that can work well. Um, That was the idea behind the abolition of the border border force or bringing that into the Home Office um, 10 years ago. Um, But that can also go quite badly. And and sometimes um, the reason is just to try and get rid of a certain leader um, or or to show that you're doing something um, on a problem. And I, I, I think that can often be a bit misguided. And when a minister has made a decision to abolish a public body, and they set out to to do it, what can go wrong? So a lot of these um, public body abolitions have two main flaws, I'd say. The first is that they're often announced quite off the cuff and not properly thought through. Um, and this can cause quite a lot of problems. So um, public bodies can be complicated legislatively to abolish, especially if they exist in primary legislation. So you see things like um, the Hearing Aid Council, which was abolished in the late 2000s, took five years to abolish despite only um, having a budget of, I think, just over a million pounds. These things can be really kind of time consuming. There there can also be a lot of operational problems. Um, So things like sorting out contracts, um, uh, changing the terms and conditions people have paid, um, all of these things take a long time for, for government to change. And, and some of these um, abolitions or changes um, are still, the consequences are still being worked through um, decades later. I think that's true with some of the changes in the Home Office where you still have people um, on on HMRC terms in the Home Office 15 years after um, uh, those elements of customs that were, were merged into the Home Office um, uh, were merged in. So that there can be lots of kind of long-term consequences which aren't fully understood when a decision's made. The other thing um, is that they're often communicated, these abolitions, very negatively. They're generally seen as um, something has gone wrong, this body is failing, let's get rid of it. And that can cause a lot of um, negative consequences down the line because actually the, the staff um, who are at that body will likely be continuing to to do the same functions even when the, the the name on the door changes. And so, if they're very demotivated, if they see see a minister uh, criticizing them or saying the body is failing completely, um, then that that undermines its ability to to kind of um, do well and, and perform public services well in future. So there can be good reasons to do it, but we urge ministers to think carefully about how they do it, Alex. You must have seen a bit of this in government when you were a civil servant. Yes, I, when I heard we were going to do this subject earlier, I went on a happy little highway and byway around the British Potato Council and the Milk Marketing Board and, you know, remembering when I was in DEFRA 15, 20 years ago uh, in, in particular. Uh, and I think, I mean, it's easy to mock the British Potato Council, but actually it does uh, illustrate exactly what Grant was saying um, uh, around the benefits and drawbacks of, of abolishing some of these bodies. So uh, on potatoes, milk, other um, uh, products have all been merged together in something called the Agriculture and Horticulture Development Board, the AHDB. Um, well done if you've heard of it. Um, uh, but what happened there was uh, ministers come in, they look at this, they think this kind of variety of, you know, organizations it's ludicrous we've got all these different um different acronyms different uh, organizations let's scrap them then they uh realize that actually uh those 
that there are some benefits to these organizations, so then we'll merge them. Well, actually, does that lose some of their identity? People had heard of the British Potato Council or the Milk Marketing Board. They've never really heard of the Agriculture and Horticulture Development Board. So there's there, there are all these kind of pros and cons about the brand of organizations, about the, the functions and whether the function is actually being abolished uh, the, the function is actually being abolished or whether it's just a merger whether it is effectively a rebranding uh, and what that what that means for how government works i mean perhaps you know perhaps more um my uh, uh, former different agriculture uh, friends won't like this perhaps more sort of seriously or profoundly the abolition of the audit commission um in you know after the coalition government came in in, in 2010 i think a lot of people would say now that that was a mistake uh, and uh, did lead to you know lower standards lower um uh, lower accountability for uh, local government that was a some of the functions were merged or dispersed but that was a that was in some senses a genuine abolition that then had negative consequences down the line um so perhaps it would have been better to reform the audit commission rather than just strike a line through it and, and abolish it. It, it does, um, it does you know, to, to that extent, affect how we're all governed. What's the role of the Cabinet Office in all this? Sort of coordination uh, role. So there's a smallish team in the Cabinet Office that um, uh, leads on a public bodies' uh, policy. Uh, they w- they sort of set the strategy, if you like, and then hold departments to account for what they're doing, uh, keeping a, you know keeping note of the numbers. Uh, the, the team uh, in the Cabinet Office uh, sort of rises and falls depending on the salience of the issue. So for the last few years, there hasn't been that much interest in uh, getting rid of public bodies. It's more been about building them. You know, the repatriation of um, uh, post-Brexit functions. Um, on the uh, environment, um, uh, uh, on you know borders and, uh, and 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 all sorts. So, actually, the role of the cabinet office then has been advising you know, some of the informed by the work that Grant and others have been been doing, uh, advising on how best to uh, create these bodies with a a good chance of success. Trying to impose some form of consistency about um, when you create a new public body uh, or abolish one, and what you know terms and conditions and all of the kind of de- detail of it as well. And also set a bit of government strategy around uh, around what it wants to what it wants to achieve through all, all, all of these different kind of parts of the state that end up being at arm's length from ministers, but then ministers get terribly frustrated when they can't control them. So it's these, these trade-offs that you grapple with when you, uh, when, when you work out how to organise things. And Gary, abolitions were a, a big deal in the coalition years, weren't they? Do you think, how do you think the agenda might change if Labour were to win the next election? Ask Sue Gray. <laughs> uh, Sue Gray used to be responsible for the public bodies team as well, so she's well-versed on all of this. Well, where do you think she'd be on it? Would she think that the uh, energy absorbed wasn't worth the time spent? It's a good question. I think I don't think she'd go for change for change's sake. I think the, um, she'd be sceptical of the sort of signalling of, uh, of this, but also you know, a believer in the strong centre. So I think dispersing, distributing too much uh, power through the, you know, Away from the the centre uh, is, is is probably something she'd be sceptical of, but it's 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 quite hard to know how she'll um you know uh, the, the enigmatic Sue Gray how how her views will uh, translate into and through the Labour Party. She will one of the reasons she's been brought in is to uh, work out plans for mm. government, uh, the build up to access talks, the first hundred days plans, and the rest of it. I can't help thinking that uh, as a Former permanent secretary level civil servant himself, Keir Starmer will well, he'll probably look very closely at Grant's uh, report, but I think he'll be wary of uh, exactly what the phrase you use, change for change's sake, when there's so much else to do. Of course, Labour's looking for more from the same amount of money, more from less in some uh, cases, and any efficiencies uh, would be alluring. But how much are these really efficiency savings in the end? They, you can end up uh, squandering a bit of money and time, uh, I, I suspect he won't be um, 
this won't be the battle of the uh, the, the assault on the quangos uh, won't be part of his agenda and grant uh if the government does decide uh the current government decides to press ahead with abolitions uh and the labor government does decide it's a priority in the future if we were to get a labor government how can they think about doing this better I, th- I think the key is having a positive vision of what you want to change and, and um, as, as Gary said, not doing change for change for change's sake. Um, uh, you need to have an idea of actually what you want the landscape to look look like after because these these abolitions, and we have some, some good examples of it, can actually be quite effective at saving money or kind of integrating things which should, should be sitting together um, and that makes a lot of civil servants and public servants' lives easier and, and can save some money. Um, but Without a a vision of that, if you're just saying you know this body is is something we don't want or um, it's not doing its job well, that that's actually unlikely to have a positive effect on how how you're delivering those services because those most things public bodies are doing will continue to be done. You know, we'll we'll still need someone to um, uh, make driving licenses or passports or um, organize lots of major public services. Um, I think the other the other thing is to have a realistic plan about how you're going to do um, an abolition, and that includes um, sensible deadlines. So not trying to there are some some quite bad examples of abolitions being rushed through before an election, or um, to try and meet a, quite an arbitrary deadline, which actually means that you just don't you often just don't change anything. You'll just be changing the name on on the door. Um, so having a proper plan for how you're going to achieve things, awareness of the kind of potential legislative kind of obstacles or opportunities. Um, and makes it much more likely that the, this is a, a positive plan of change rather than um, uh, just a, um, a a change of the, the name on the on the door of this body. Well, let's hope they all take your advice, Grant. Well, that's it for this week. Many thanks to Rhys Klein, Grant Dalton, Alex Thomas, and especially Gary Gibbon. And thank you all for listening at home. Remember, you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms, and leave us a review unless you want to abolish us. If you missed it, do check out our special International Women's Day podcast on which I caught up with Polly Curtis, the director of Demos, and Charlotte Pickles, director of Reform, for a great chat about what it's like to be working on public life, parliament and government. Do give it a listen. And you can find Grant's paper as well as all our latest commentary on our website. We'll be back next week when, and this has come around quickly, it's budget week. The news never stops. See you then. <laughs>